Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Uh, in the month of July for the next few weeks, we're going to take a dive into the Bible, and we're going to look closely at one person who has more recorded miracles directly done by him than anybody else except for Jesus. And you may not intuitively know, well, who is that? Uh, it's Elisha, not Elijah with a J, but Elisha with an S-H. And it's very easy often to get them confused. Now, Elisha was a student under Elijah. And even though there's some impressive and amazing things Elijah did in the name of God, it was Elisha that God used to perform even more direct miracles than his great teacher. And the reason for diving into the story this summer is really one thing. It's it's my hope that over the month of July, your faith would increase, your faith would expand because of getting to know this guy's life, because he had ridiculous faith. Elisha had ridiculous faith. Now, not ridiculous like it was absurd or silly or unreasonable. I mean, but but ridiculous like awesome or inspiring. Ridiculous is one of those words that kind of has two definitions, right? A good one and then kind of like a cultural definition that it's a word that means something kind of ridiculous means something unreasonable, but you can also use the word ridiculous in kind of a good way, right? Like if somebody's talking about the company you work for and you put in for vacation and you have every right to take it, but they're not letting you take your vacation when you want to, somebody might say that is ridiculous that they would do that. But somebody could also come right in and say, hey, the company I work for, they just gave everybody an extra week's vacation this year. And you would say, that's ridiculous. You know, it's the same word, but it's kind of got two different meanings, right? There's a lot of words that, that are like that in our culture. They mean two different things, like the word bad, right? Bad can be bad, or bad can actually be better than good. That's bad, right? Or sick, right? You could say something is sick because there's a pile of vomit on the floor. Oh, that's sick. Somebody got sick. But then you can also say, like, you know, somebody does something amazing on a dirt bike or four-wheeler. That was sick, right? It can, it can mean both things. Or the word unreal. When somebody say, you know, does something alarming, you could say, that is unreal, But you can also say it when something is surprisingly awesome. That was unreal. So today we're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to see the sick faith of this guy, Elisha. And we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. But before we get there, let me kind of give you some context. Before we introduce Elisha, let's get some context into Elijah's life, Elijah with a J, so we don't get them confused. And both had a bold, daring, unreal faith. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, we find Elijah all by himself. One guy one prophet of the true God of Israel, Jehovah. He's got a bold faith in what God can do. And so he stands publicly and opposes 850 prophets of the false gods, Baal and Asherah. One guy versus 850 false prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but any pay-per-view event that I've ever watched it's always been kind of an, an equal footing, right? You, you watch a boxing match, you watch UFC. I remember being a kid, and you know, a couple of times we rented like WrestleMania. And the, the main event is, is one person against one person. And this is kind of like a pay-per-view event on Mount Carmel. And God shows up in dramatic fashion, and one prophet of Israel wipes the floor with 850 false prophets. But that one ended completely differently than any pay-per-view I ever saw because when it was all done, they were all executed. So that never happened in a pay-per-view I saw. But the God of Israel demonstrates he can he who he he demonstrates who he is and what he can do anytime he wants to. That's 1 Kings 18. The very next chapter in the aftermath of the Mount Carmel slaughter, 
while experiencing bouts of depression, which Elijah often struggled with, God leads him in chapter 19 to meet his student, Elisha. And as Elisha saw the faith of Elijah, Elisha wanted to be like this great prophet. So Elisha was bold enough, ridiculous enough. He was sick enough to ask God to give him a double portion of Elijah's anointing. I mean, that's kind of an audacious request before God. I've seen the kind of stuff, I've heard the kind of stuff Elijah did. God, give me twice that blessing, twice that anointing. And God chooses to give him what he asked for. We're going to talk about that throughout the month of July. But what might be most wild about this guy, now that's another word that kind of has good and bad meanings, right? Wild, that's wild. What might be most wild about this guy, Elisha, is that he's incredibly ordinary. Incredibly ordinary. He wasn't born in an impressive family. He wasn't like the son of a priest. He wasn't a religious scholar. He wasn't some sort of like obvious charismatic leader that people gravitated towards. It's the ninth century B.C., in a time when Israel is divided, they, kinda, they don't like each other. There's a lot of friction between Israel to the north and Judah to the south. There's tension between these two countries that used to be united under King David and King Solomon. And at this time in the history, the Hebrew people, there was a lot of spiritual drifting and confusion around worship and around who God was. There was a significant number of Jews that got, got, got caught up in choosing to worship the false god Baal. And in this context, this ordinary guy, living at home with his parents probably, working on a farm, God calls him to leave that life behind for a purpose he's going to use him for, for something extraordinary. And so here, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at just three verses today. And here's what, what we're told in verse 19. Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Like, can you imagine you're out there working in the field? Like, imagine this story. We imagine it from our cultural context because that's all we have. We don't, we don't know the cultural context of 3,000 years ago. But he's just out there working this plow with oxen, and some random guy comes into a field and places a, a jacket over his shoulders. There's some symbolism here we'll get to, but, but as we're reading it from our cultural perspective, it's like, that's kind of weird, and then he just walks away. <laughs> Verse 20, Elijah left the oxen standing there. He just walks away from the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now, this is only the beginning of Elisha's story, so much more about his life. And for us to grasp it, we're going to kind of take it in piecemeal over the next few weeks. But from this moment, it starts with a very dramatic, significant display of faith and commitment on the part of Elisha. I mean, when Elijah comes across him, we're told he's out in the field plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself is driving the last pair. So imagine for a moment, what's the life of a young man that drives oxen and plows a field every single day? What's his life like? Day after day after day, on infinite repeat, right? I mean, the one thing that I think about is the fact that there's, there's only one thing he stares at every single day, right? It's... It's the backside of oxen. That's all he gets to, that's, that's his view. That's the scenery. That's all he's going to get to see 
driving a pair of oxen to plow or work the ground. It's backbreaking work. Here's a, a little video that kind of shows you a, a teams of oxen plowing just one stretch at a time. And now, if you can imagine, this is just a few pair, but can you imagine 12 pair of oxen? What is it you're stepping in all day? Oxen residue, right? And if you're the last one, you're, ste- you're not stepping in two oxen, it's 24 oxen in front of you that are leaving surprises for you uh, to try to navigate around. The ground is uneven the entire time. You're plowing this field, and it's, it's necessary work. But is it the most glorious, awesome? No, there's a lot of monotony to it, right? There's a lot of monotony. Many of us could, could probably identify with Elisha. Maybe even in your job, in your career, in the season of life at which you're in. Maybe you don't stare at the backside of oxen all day. Maybe it's a different animal. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you feel like what you do day in and day out is, is monotonous, right? If, if, if you've got a new baby at home, there's a different rear end you're seeing a lot, right? Uh, if you're a, a stay-at-home mom or dad, you can kind of feel like, you know what, wake up, change a diaper, make a bottle, entertain, make sure this toddler doesn't you know, kill themselves or set stuff on fire. You feel like you never get a night's sleep. The laundry never ends. The dishes never end. The meals are never ending. There's so much crying and whining and tantrums. And that's just your husband, not to mention the kids, right? <laughs> Maybe for you, the monotony is you work and, and you're working from home still. You're always on a screen. There's always a screen. You're just so sick of looking at a screen. It never ends. Maybe you have animals on a farm. You know, letting out the chickens, getting the eggs, calling in the cows, milking, cutting hay and baling hay and cutting hay and baling hay. and Same thing, same time, every day, monotony. Same thing every season, it never ends. Maybe you're in sales, and even when you have a great day, you hit that goal one day, you hit that goal one week, you know that tomorrow when you wake up, you got to start over again. And the goal's out in front of you again, and you've got to find new leads, and you've got to nurture existing clients. Maybe you're a student. And, and in order to, to, to be in school, you got to work. And so you're, you're, you're working, working, working to pay bills. And then you come home and then you're studying, studying, studying to do as best you can. And you're barely making ends meet. It just feels like a cycle you're stuck on that'll never end. This is where Elisha was at. A monotonous task, a repetitive career. It's vital for people to survive. Somebody has to work the ground. But it was tedious and wearisome and felt like it was going to go on Forever, because he knew that there were many others like him that spent their entire life in the same field, stirring up the same dirt, nurturing the same seeds, harvesting the same crops year after year after year after year. But if you notice, there's something about Elisha that's not said in the text that we can infer by what's happening, because we know a principle of God's. Elisha was being faithful with the task at hand. There's a principle you find littered all throughout the Bible, and it's a principle that Jesus even teaches about. He tells a story about, tells a parable in Matthew chapter 25, that when we're faithful with little things, God entrusts to us more. And of all the 12 teams that day, of all the people Elijah could have bumped into or found his way towards, God sets him on a path to walk up to this field and to the 12th team of oxen to Elisha and put his cloak across his shoulders. What does this mean? Basically, this cloak is a symbol. It's it's communicating with actions in much the same way we understand this is a wave and you're saying hello when your windows are up and your air conditioning is on, but you see somebody you know, hey, how's it going, right? There's nothing verbally communicated, but it's a symbol of something. And so when he puts this cloak, this, this animal skin or fur across Elisha's shoulders, this holy man is now saying, he's communicating to Elisha, he's saying, what it was that had covered me is now going to cover you. 
It's an invitation. Elijah's saying, what I am under, you are now going to be under as well. You're going to be my student, and I'm going to be your mentor. And you're going to learn what I know so you can do what I do, so you can be like me. Now visualize this moment for a minute. In our culture, it kind of seems weird not a place. But a thousand years before Jesus is born, this is a momentous occasion. This is the kind of thing. This is, this is the first pick in the NFL draft. Of everybody else, you're the one identified to come alongside the prophet of God to be his student and become a prophet in time. I mean, this is the dream that you would have for your kids. This is the best case scenario. And what does Elisha do? How does he respond? Verse 20, he left the oxen standing there and ran after Elijah. I mean, he immediately is like, yes, I'm in. But the context of his acceptance is fascinating when you think about it. If you've ever switched careers, that's a big decision, right? I mean, maybe, maybe when you were in college or maybe now you're in college and you're thinking, just thinking about changing your major and you've been in school for a couple of years, like that's a really big decision because you know it might mean it's going to be longer now till you graduate and maybe the field you're thinking about transitioning to is even more competitive than the one that you're in and you're not even sure your grades will be good enough or when you graduate that there's going to be opportunity there but you just kind of feel like I think this is what I need to do. I mean, there can be a lot of anxiety and fear that grips our hearts in the midst of a major transition. Relocating your family, there's a lot to weigh. When you take a new job or you say, okay, we're, we're done with the winters, we're going somewhere warmer, which a lot of people did at, during COVID, and we still don't like you out there that are watching that did that. We miss you. Um, but no, there's a lot to consider, a lot to weigh, a lot, of, a lot that goes into that decision. And Elisha, not knowing anything about Elijah, all he knows is he's got a fur coat. Like, that's about it. Like, oh, this is nice. I'm going to go with him. You know, no. He knew this was God's move. This was, this was God leading him, and he said... If God's in it, it's good enough for me. Let's go. I mean, God has sent Elijah that field to that day. God has chosen Elisha to become a student, saying, I have a calling for you. One of the things we have to make sure we understand, though, is Elisha's calling wasn't better than the other 11 guys plowing the field. We're all called by God. We all have vocations, and we're all called to be missionaries, and we're called to be ministers of the gospel of peace in any area, in any arena we find ourselves in. God has placed us in the neighborhoods we live and in the workplaces we work and in the campuses we go to school. God has arranged that and orchestrated that by a sovereign hand. That's where we are and we're there on purpose. So we have to make sure we understand that this is not a, a bigger, more important calling. This is Elisha's calling on his life. But there was plenty of ministry for others to do as well. Elisha says, if God's in it, I'm good. Elisha's quick to move when the invitation is made. And he didn't even know all the details. He didn't know the details. He didn't know what this meant. I think it's fascinating, too, how often do we kind of sometimes, you know, we, we pull out our wallet and we look for something. And uh, it's, called, uh, it's called the God card. Well, let me pray about that. Let me... Uh, let me, let me, you know, I just need to, I need to, I need to consider that for a few days. I think it's amazing. Elisha didn't need to pray. He didn't need to say, well, let me, let me talk to my pastor first before I go. He didn't say, I need to weigh my options first. I need to see what's in it for me. None of those things, not hyper-spiritual, not hyper-practical. He was ready spontaneously to be obedient to God. He just pursued God, and he didn't want to miss any opportunity that God opened the door to. Now, I'm not discouraging wisdom. I'm not discouraging prayer in any way, shape, or form. But I think this tells us the heartbeat of Elisha in tune with the Holy Spirit. 
in tune with, with his creator, with, with, with the God that he already served, with the fact he'd been faithful in little things and God was now opening the door to more. He was ready to go and ready to be obedient. To me, this is a great reminder that when it comes to obedience, I don't need to know all the details to obey God today. I don't need to know what, what's going what to lead to and what's going to happen next. I, just, I know I've been given this day, this moment, this breath to choose. Will I be faithful and obedient to God or will I be unfaithful and disobedient? I don't need to know all the outcomes of this. I'm not God anyways. Elisha didn't need to know all the details. And he shows us that we don't need to know specifics to obey God. It's faith that causes us to trust and obey our Savior. Now, if I'm honest, I think sometimes we get too preoccupied with the decisions we make day to day, and we think about five years, we think about 20 years, and we think about even longer. And that focus, if we're, if we're trying to make decisions today to impact and control outcomes a year from now, a month from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, oftentimes that puts the, the dominant thoughts in our head, we're thinking about us, we're not asking God. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we get so caught up in, well, if I do this, this is what's going to benefit me. This is how it's going to lead to. And if I make this transition or if I do this with my money or if I do this with job or if I do this with my kids, like this is where it's going to go. And, and that focus on what we think we can control oftentimes will make us angry when things don't go that way. It'll make us irritable in the moment. Sometimes it can breed hopelessness, like there's no way out of this, like because five years from now, I'm still going to be in this place. It can make us really short-tempered. And I think Elisha's response here is a reminder to us to have a spiritual readiness beckoning us to just be obedient to God. And 99% of obedience to God, he's already solved in his word, hasn't he? 99% of obedience to God, he's already told us this is right, this is wrong, this is okay, this is not okay, this is what glorifies me, this is, this is not what glorifies me, this is abhorrent to me. Faith causes us to trust him. And Elisha's response here, he trusts God, and he's going to be obedient whether he knows the details or not. Now, planning for the future is a good thing, but we don't want our decisions of the day today to be reflective in what we're trying to build for ourselves. We have to first pass it through, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? God, I want to be obedient to you. Even if it means a month from now, a year from now, it's not going to be good for me. I want to be obedient to you. Let me give you a couple illustrations of what I mean. I mean, Adam and Eve, they're, 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 with, they're in the garden. The serpent shows up and he mentions one idea about the future. He says, if you do this, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Now, they don't know the details of how they can be like God, when that'll happen, but just the idea of a future where they could be like God is enough to convince them, to tempt them, to disobey God. And think about how much pain it brought that we're still dealing with today. Samson in the Bible is given a specific gift by God, an incredible strength. But, but do you notice in, in the details of Samson's birth and origin as a Nazarite, with a Nazarite vow, God established boundaries for him, limits Samson was supposed to discipline himself according to, and what happened? Samson didn't obey God. He used his power for himself, and his life was a train wreck. And he was even betrayed by someone he trusted greatly. And his death was tragic. There was a redemptive arc for him, but it was still incredibly depressing. Samson didn't know how things would play out in detail, but he tried to create his own future. He used the power he had for himself, and his disobedience brought him so much pain. Maybe you're thinking about your future right now. 
Maybe you're dating somebody and, and you're really interested in them and you're thinking about the future of this person that you love and you just love them so much and you can't imagine life without them and you just want to be with them in every way and you love the idea of a future with that person and you don't want to have any limits in the relationship. So right now you know this is not what God's word says, but you're doing what your body craves and what you want and you're busting through these boundaries that God has designed to protect us, to guard us, to save us from ruin. And you don't know the details of how God wants to bless you in the future for being obedient to him. You can't measure those things now, but you have a choice to make. Are you trying to build your own future, or are you being obedient to him today and letting him build your future? Maybe you have a detailed plan for your finances so the future can be better than you ever thought possible. So you have a plan for every dollar you make so you can realize that dream in the future. But right now, when it comes to what God says about bringing the first into his house bringing to him what belongs to him and not stealing from him, you're disobedient. And you're claiming it's yours, not his, with your actions. You don't know the details of how God wants to bless you in the future for obedience today in the air of your finances. And you've forgotten that he's the one that gives you everything you have. The question is, you don't know all the details of how God will bless you, but do you trust him enough to be obedient today knowing he will and he's faithful to his word? The truth is God rarely gives us many details, does he? He seems to strategically be vague in his direction in the Bible. Sometimes I think if, if we knew all the details of what God was going to do, if we said yes today in obedience, it would freak us out and we would probably pause and hesitate. Or like Jonah, we would run the other way. Like that's one of those scenarios in the Bible where Jonah knows God is going to rescue people in Nineveh. I hate Ninevites. I'm not going. And he goes the other way. Like God gave him details and he resisted with, with passion. Didn't work out so good for Jonah, did it? But there's a number of places where there's a vague direction. In fact, I would say, I would argue the majority of Scripture, God gives a vague direction because if he told them the details, they'd be scared to death. Think about Abraham in Genesis. God says, hey, Abr Abram, go in that direction, and I'll make you into a great nation. Just go that way. He doesn't tell them where. He doesn't tell them where it's going to end. He just says, go there. He, he doesn't tell them how, what, when, why. He just says, go. Moses in Exodus, God says, hey, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And immediately Moses is flooded with questions. He's like, how's that going to work? Who's going to make that happen? Pharaoh's not going to go along with that. What's he going to say? How's he going to treat me? I can't say that to him. I don't even, I, 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 I don't even have the right words, God. I, 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 I can't do this. I'm the wrong guy for this. He could kill me. He probably will. Just kill me now. That would be better for me. Right? Filled with questions. Just go tell him. And what does God say as he's talking to that, that bush on fire? He says, I'll be with you. He doesn't give him the answers. He doesn't give him the details. He doesn't say, I'm going to give 10 plagues and it's going to kind of force him into the corner and realize he has no power. No. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Just go. Just be obedient. You have Peter in a boat. Jesus is out walking on the water. At first, they think it's a ghost. And what instruction does Jesus give to Peter? One word. He says, come. Come. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm on a boat and there's somebody out there somewhere, maybe even on a dock, and they're like, come. I don't think, yep, I'm going to step out on the boat and walk on the water. I'm like, they mean bring the boat over so they can get in. That's what I think when the word come is said, right? But no, he just steps out into the boat. Is that you? Yep, come. And so he steps out. I mean, that's ridiculous. Peter, a lot of things Peter did was ridiculous in both sides of it, right? Good and bad. God doesn't often give a ton of detail. Sometimes God, through the prophets, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, he'll just speak one word that can convey a million different things to a million different people, but he'll convey one word that, that hits you like a ton of bricks. 
And I want to ask you today, is there one word God is, is whispering to you today? I've been praying the last couple of days, God, would you just speak one word to everybody that hears this message? Whisper one word, a word of challenge, a word of direction, a word of comfort. One word. Maybe that word for you is wait. Maybe you're trying to rush something. You're trying to make it happen in your time. You're trying to accomplish what you want. And God's word to you is wait. Maybe the one word God is speaking to you is talk. There's some stuff going on in your life. You're just stuffing it down and stuffing it down. And you're afraid to bring it up. And you're afraid what somebody's going to think. But there are people that love you. And God wants you to trust them enough, just one person, to talk. Somebody else, maybe it's stay. Maybe somebody's thinking about walking away from something or giving up. Or walking away from someone. And God is saying, stay. You don't know all the details of what God's going to do and how he's going to bless. But be obedient to that word today. Stay. Maybe God is speaking the word forgive. Like you have a hard time going five minutes without getting wrapped up in frustration with that person that doesn't deserve forgiveness. But, but God wants you to remember that you never deserved his either. And he wants you to be free of that bitterness. And so he's speaking that one word forgive. Maybe it's the word believe. Maybe by everything else looking on, there's no reason to believe anymore. Maybe there's something about God or your situation that's causing you to doubt. And God is whispering a word of faith to you. Trust me. Believe. Maybe it's the word commit. Maybe God is calling you to step up and draw a line in the sand and just quit, quit kind of flirting with it. Quit, quit sitting on the fence and just trying to coast by and get around. No. Commit. Make a decision. Maybe it's the word serve. Maybe if you're honest, you kick your feet up, you're relaxing, and God is saying, you need to allow your talents and abilities to be used in service to others, and he's speaking the word serve. Maybe it's the word give. God is calling you to be generous. Maybe it's the word listen. There's someone in your life that needs that per Someone speaking to somebody here, talk. God is saying, talk to somebody, and to somebody else, God is saying, listen. With all these examples, God doesn't promise to give us the details up front. He will give you what you need to take the next step if you simply ask him, very simply, Lord, what's next? Lord, what's next? Lord, what's next? Ask him for a word of direction. Ask him for his help. But when you do that, when you ask him what's next and you're looking for that word, make sure you open his word to find it. Make sure you schedule time to sit with a brother or sister in Christ so you can share words with them and discern what God is saying to you. I mean, it's almost like Elisha was already constantly asking God, okay, I'm plowing today. I'm looking at the back end of oxen all day. I'm stepping in their stuff. What's next, God? What's next? To the point that when Elijah shows up, Elisha was already to say, he was ready to say yes before it happened. Now, I'm in no way going to compare myself to Elisha. I mean, this guy had twice the anointing of Elijah and, and what he did on Mount Carmel. But I remember having a sense now over 16 years ago, God was telling me to leave. And it was a weird sensation, leave my hometown, leave my comfort zone, be, be 11 hours away from my biological family, and move to Cobleskill, New York. I was a single guy at the time, and I could have never imagined how incredible the journey God would have these last 16 years would be. And I believe that as amazing and as challenging as it's been, it's still just barely begun, and it's far from over. I can't even begin to put into words. If God would have said, I want you to leave, and you're going to be a senior pastor at a church in rural upstate New York, I would have probably been like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about that. He might have even said, well, you're going to meet your wife there. I would have been like, okay, but does it have to be there maybe? You know, I don't know. What I, he didn't give me the details. He just said, leave. And he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. It's not up to us to try to figure out what he's doing. It's up to, up to us to be faithful and obedient.
And there's been a lot of other places I've been disobedient along the way over these last 16 years, but that was one I got right. So maybe that word God's speaking to you is one you can get right as well. Often God just gives us the next step. Elisha didn't know all the details for tomorrow, but God was calling him to obey him today. We just have to make a choice what matters more to us, to take the next step our way or to take the next step God's way. And the more often we take those steps God's way, the more peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, the more our relationships thrive. So that's the first takeaway from Elisha's story. You don't have to know all the details to be obedient to God today. The second one, the last one, is in verse 21. And this is how this section ends of his story. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Elisha didn't need to know the details to obey God, but because he trusted God, he burned his backup plan. He burned his backup plan. These oxen were the tools that he used to make a living, right? It's all he depended on every day to make a living. If you're a carpenter, you use a hammer. If you're a programmer, you use a keyboard. If you're a teacher, you use a webcam, or at least you have this last year, and you don't want to anymore, right? The oxen were animals that made his livelihood possible. And what does the Bible say he did with them? The Bible says he slaughtered them. He killed them dead. He eliminated them once and for all, and then ate them. What did he do with the plow? Scripture says he burned it to cook the meat on. And then he gave away the meat. He's not even hedging his bets with, I think I'm going to dry some and keep it for the next few months because I don't know what the pay scale is with Elijah, right? No, he set out to follow Elijah and became a servant. This is some ridiculous, unreal, crazy, sick faith, right? He didn't hedge his bets. He didn't wait. He didn't say, well, you know what? Uh, give, me, give me a day. I just want to find a stable that I can board the oxen in, somebody that can use them. That way, if this doesn't work out with you, then, then I can come back and I've still got a livelihood. He didn't, he didn't take his pair of oxen and his plow and put them for rent on Facebook Marketplace so he can make a little cash on the side while he's working as a missionary, right? He burnt the plow. He had some burn the plow faith. He believed God was calling him to follow this prophet, and that God would take care of the details from there. Maybe Elisha would become a prophet too. Maybe even greater than him. Maybe God had something else in mind. The bottom line is Elisha had faith in God's sovereign plan. So he starts a fire, slaughters the oxen, and then invites people over to celebrate with a barbecue. It's almost like Elisha's saying, I'm burning my backup plan. There's no plan B here, God. Plan A is following you. It's a demonstration of his ridiculous faith. And it's also a statement by Elisha to say, you know what? Obeying God will always be my plan A. Obeying God will always be my plan A. The Bible's filled with people that did ridiculous things to follow God. Our church history over 2,000 years now is filled with ridiculous things people have done to follow God. So many have given their lives in obedience to God, even at times being accosted by the church itself. The question we have to ask individually for our lives is, will we obey God even when it seems ridiculous, even when we don't know the details of how it's going to play out, and even if the details of how it plays out are not in our favor. You know, when Jesus encountered Peter for the very first time in Luke chapter 5, Peter was having a bad day in his career. This was a monotonous job. Every day, get the nets out, get in the boat, go fishing. At the end of the day, spend a couple of hours cleaning and mending the nets and drying them out so you can use them again tomorrow. Nets and a boat that had probably been used for six, seven, eight generations of fishermen in Peter and Andrew's family. 
And on the day Jesus meets Peter, nothing's going right. And Jesus, a complete stranger at the time from the beach, comes by and says, Hey, buddy, how's it going out there? And Peter shouts back, Not too good, pal. And Jesus responded and said, Well, hey, uh, why don't you throw the net on the other side of the boat? Peter was like, I'm still in the same spot, pal. It's the same lake. I don't think you know what you're talking about. Leave the fishing up to me. And Jesus says, do it. So Peter, to humor this guy on the beach, what's he do? He throws it over and he catches so many fish, the nets start breaking. And immediately Peter wants to know, who is that guy? And in that moment, kind of like Elijah with Elisha, Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, I'm going to put you in the most hostile environment in your lifetime. You're going to be the central focus of people that want to kill you, arrest you, and stop you. He doesn't say, I'm going to change your life and give you a burden for people you don't know. He doesn't say, you're going to be executed if you follow me. He says, come with me, I'll make you, fish. I'll make you a fisher of men. And Peter with his brother Andrew, what do they do? The Bible tells us they just drop their nets. They don't burn them because they've existed for generations and their dad's probably going to use them. But leaving behind their nets is a symbol. They're all in. Do you have a burn the plow kind of faith? I'm not just asking you that this week. I'm asking myself that this week. I want to. I aspire to. Does it mean that every problem we have will be solved? Does it mean that every prayer we pray will be answered? It doesn't mean that everything will make sense. But if God is speaking a word to you, if you have a sense the Holy Spirit is speaking a word to you, he's calling you to obey him, to trust him. You won't have all the details. And to obey, you may have to burn your backup plan. And at times it'll be really, really hard. But are you all in with the God who was all in for you? Because we know our Savior had to burn the plow determination. I want to invite the worship team up. They're going to close us out with a song. And, and the song that they've picked to close us out with is a song of decisive action. I want to encourage you to pay attention to the lyrics of this song because I think it represents the heart of Elisha. I think it represents the heart of Peter and Andrew as they left their nets behind to follow Jesus. And I hope that for us that, that, that it represents our hearts. But more than that, it represents a desire in us today that's kind of reinvigorated to say, I want to have a burn the plow kind of faith. I mean, there's moments in our lives where God speaks so profoundly to us that we know we'll never be the same again. And we, we never want to turn back and go back from where we come. But we just want to move forward with Jesus. So I want to invite you today, burn the bridge that could take you back to where you came from. Don't go back if God is calling you forward. God can build within all of us a plow-burning faith. We're deep within. We're willing to do whatever it takes to follow God to the next place. Lord Jesus, we know that you want to build our faith as we follow you, both corporately as a church, but also individually. We know it can't happen corporately as a body. We can't go there together until we've gone there with you in our own lives. Lord, we also know what your word says, that it is impossible to please you without faith. So God, we want to follow you. That's why we're here on, on July 4th, a holiday weekend. We could be one of a million other places, but we're here in a worship gathering. We're, we're participating by, by video or by podcast in a worship gathering because, God, we want to follow you. We want to obey you. We want to have a heart that's ready to be obedient in a moment, especially when, when in your word you tell us what's right and wrong. 
We don't have to weigh or consider or flirt with temptation when you've told us this is okay, this is God-honoring, and this is abhorrent in your sight. May we choose you. May we choose to ask you, Lord, what's next. May we choose to say yes to the word you're speaking to our soul now. May we choose courage. May we choose to worship your name, the name above every name. And by doing that consistently, would you build within us a ridiculous faith? In your holy name we pray. Amen.